at the end of the day, when it comes to autonomy, the commercial market is way ahead. You see this across the board. So learn from it. This is All Quiet on the Second Front, a podcast where boring conversations around defense tech and national security come to die. Join me, Tyler Sweat, and my Second Front comrades as we dismantle the mundane, cut through the bureaucratic BS to demystify the world of defense tech. But be warned, this is not a typical government podcast. Ready to get weird? This is a Soul Fire production. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is your host, Tyler Sweat. Welcome to another episode of All Quiet on the Second Front, the podcast where boring defense talk comes to die. Uh, again, I guess the same thing on our last episode. I am increasingly fortunate enough to have people I admire, respect, and really enjoy spending time with increasingly on this podcast. A um, bunch of good friends recently. We're doing that again with interesting tech, interesting human, really interesting story. Ahmed from Applied Intuition. So I'm going to let Ahmed introduce himself a little bit, talk about how he got here, how he got into defense tech, kind of what that looks like. Pop the hood a little, little bit on some of the work that's getting done and applied. And I think we've got a bunch of really interesting places we're going to take it. So I'm my brother. Thanks for being with us and uh, give the people a little bit of a little bit of the story of you. Yeah, no, thanks, Tyler, uh, for having me. Great, great to be on uh, and great, great to chat with you. Yeah. So um, I think for me, the the broad thing that got me involved in this was the idea that commercial software could really have an enormous source of leverage against hard problems in defense. That's kind of been the through line over the last few years in terms of what I've been up to. Um, right now, I'm at Applied Intuition. Um, I lead our federal growth team. Uh, and before that, I was at Palantir. And, and before that, I uh, ran an R&D center. Uh, but it's really when I started off um, working on R&D programs, when I realized some of the issues that uh, the foreign policy and national security establishment was facing, uh, when it came to deploying tech accurately. So that program was super successful. This was at Georgetown. We were getting federal R&D dollars. We were uh, winning federal contracts. We were getting IP. And I was like, this is great. We're doing something really interesting and something really useful. But then when the time came to transition, we were what I would consider to be a successful failure. There was no transition. All that money had been spent, but there were no users on the government side. And now everything that's left of that project is like a, maybe a couple of hundred pages report, some uh, petabytes of data on a random server rack in Georgetown, uh, and nothing working. And I was like, this is weird. We spent all this time and effort. It was really interesting, but nothing happened. There has to be a better way. Uh, and that's what led me to Silicon Valley. That's what led me to Palantir. And there I sort of learned, oh, actually, here's a way not only that you can really quickly develop really interesting tools but you can actually deploy them at scale, get them to solve really hard problems. Uh, and then Applied, which is a much earlier stage company, which I joined about um, a year and a half ago, uh, where we had a very strong commercial business, but we had no government business. And our challenge was, hey, how do we build this? How do we make this happen? I saw the same thing where if you were doing things correctly, as in you were deploying and building these uh, software platforms quickly, you were getting user feedback, you were deploying them at scale, you could do really useful things. So that's kind of what's driven me. It's like, hey, how can we deploy these really interesting new technologies against these really hard problems and problems that matter? Uh, and my sense has been that there's just a lot that's good uh, and that we and, and others in the ecosystem, we can play a role in bringing this to market and government. It's interesting. It's interesting to hear you talk about sort of 
deploy at scale and the challenge with transition, I think that's oft, oft talked about as this big, hairy, like impossible to decompose problem. And I know you and I have spent a bunch of time kind of chatting about, hey, all right, if like we break that down into component parts, there's probably a way to bring maybe the mature sort of transition partners, those PEOs, a way they're looking to receive data, to receive technology, and marry that up with some of those, those innovative kind of move fast, more agile procurement entities, your AFWorks, your DIU, your Tells. How do we bring them to a common place in the middle where we can actually do handoffs? And what does, what does a handoff look like? And before we sort of get into to that directly, I think that's a neat segue for what does Applied do? What are you working on now? How do you guys fit into the, to the broader tech deployment, tech adoption, tech scale, all of that? Yeah, for sure. Um, so what Applied does is, you know, our mission is uh, accelerating the deployment of, of safe and intelligent machines. That's our, our, our tagline. But the tactical way we support that um, is essentially accelerating autonomous system development through software infrastructure. And in particular, we focus on using modeling and simulation tools to accelerate your uh, autonomous system, whether it's you know a ship, a tank, a plane, whatever it may be, uh, getting into an operational environment. And basically what we say is, look, you can't get all the real-world data that you need at the price that makes sense uh, at a speed that's going to be relevant to uh, your needs without using simulation. It's just too hard to collect that data and then use that data to train the actual autonomy on your system. Uh, what you need to do is complement that and augment that with doing this in simulation. And then we have an array of different software modules uh, that depending on your legacy tech investments, uh, we bring to bear to, to make that happen. Um, one example of how that works is sort of even more tactically, it's like you have a vehicle, you know, the vehicle has, if it's going to work autonomously, it needs to be able to see what's going on in its environment, needs to be able to convert what it's seeing into a plan. You know, how should it get from point A to point B? How should it avoid obstacles? That sort of thing. So what you can do a lot of those things. You can decompose those steps uh, in simulation. And if those simulations are rigorously developed, if they're validated by real-world data, you can train the autonomy that's running on the hardware. Uh, pretty effectively. So that's kind of what we do. And we're doing this, uh, you know, we've, we're, like I said, um, it's a commercial software company, been around for over six years, started the government business about a year and a half ago. On the government side, we've deployed this for a bunch of different use cases at different ground autonomy programs of record. And we're also working um, with Air Force uh, on, on some interesting use cases. That's awesome. So, you know, you think, you talk about sort of the, that testing and evaluation, the ability to understand, you know, the rigor, the robustness, the trustworthiness. I think there's sort of a litany of, of kind of terms du jour right now on sort of what is that, that human machine teaming sort of trust kind of architecture look like. How does that or using that as a model, you know, let's talk, let's dig into those, those challenges of transition, right? What are how should folks be thinking about transitioning autonomous software? How do we plan in and build in sort of trust from the beginning so that when we're asking a large sort of more institutionalized organization, you know, in this case, a program of record to adopt something new, it's not necessarily perceived as risk, 
but it's we're making an ask and we're delivering in a form factor that's that's recognizable and consumable and then deployable to them. No, hundred percent. I mean, it's a great question. So I think one thing is is you stepping back from distrust specifically broadly as you think about the autonomy problem. Uh, there are some like couple of like pretty basic first principles. I think one thing is hey, don't get bogged down in definitions at the outset. Focus on use cases. So, for example, on the commercial side, you have very well-defined levels of autonomy from like level one, you know, all, all the way onwards. And there's going to be this temptation, and you see it. Okay, let's just like very like rigorously, but really ultimately arbitrarily use find the correlates for those in the defense side. But actually, don't get caught up in the semantic debate. Think about what are the operational scenarios that you're trying to solve for, and figure out for those operational scenarios if I plugged in a platform or I orchestrated a collection of platforms, uh, what's that going to, um, what's that autonomous system or that collection of autonomous systems look like? I think that's just like a basic principle. And then within that, you figure out, hey, okay, it turns out trust is a really key component between the human and the machine. And then based on the scenario, that trust is going to vary. Uh, sometimes you need a lot more, sometimes you need less. If it's a fully autonomous system collaborating with a partially autonomous system, and a crewed aircraft, the the trust metrics you're gonna need are gonna be very different. I think the other thing here is getting the software right is really critical, which again, it's obvious to you, it's obvious to me and many other of our friends. It's not obvious to me that it's obvious to folks in the department. We're still used to thinking- They've never, they've never had to think about it, right? They haven't had to think about it. They're still yeah. thinking in terms of those large, exquisite, hardware platforms. Oh, an autonomous platform just means the same hardware platform, but it's kind of going on its own. Yeah, but why is it moving on its own? It's the software piece of it. You have to get that right. Okay, but how do you determine like what that looks like uh, when you're developing your requirements, when you are thinking about how to evaluate it? It's fundamentally different. And that goes all the way into not just trust, but how you do TNE. and uh, And I think that's the other key. It's like, don't leave testing and evaluation till the end. It's way to the right in, across all these programs. You have to rethink how this is going to look like because you're not going to have that system built perfectly and then tested at the end. It's going to happen. Yeah, it's not how software is built anymore. It's not how software is built. It's going to happen incrementally. And look, it's good for you. You don't have to spend a ton of money upfront on this exquisite thing that then it doesn't work and then you have you know, the too big to fail problem. No, you're doing it in yeah. modular components. You're building it, you're proving it. If it works, you ramp up the investment. If it doesn't, you ramp off. That's what makes sense. I think the last thought I'll add here is uh, buy commercial when it makes sense. That It's not always going to make sense. There are all kinds of reasons where you want super custom tailored solutions. But the, at the end of the day, when it comes to autonomy, the commercial market is way ahead. You see this across the board. Uh, so learn from it. Right. So if those platforms exist, find the right partners and vendors who can help you tailor that, deploy that against your requirements. Yeah, it's two two things really stick out for me there. One is sort of pulling testing left. I think that is a like a philosophical change that we've got to drive through the department. And that iterative testing, a testing often and testing early is not a bad thing and is not some sort of like drag coefficient on cost scheduler performance. It's actually the opposite, right? It's an enabler so that you can optimize across the three and it allows for 
sort of micro tuning of those three throughout the life cycle of the program. Like that's a huge thing. And then the second part is, you know, talking about trust and we often talk about it in both an abstract and then a highly specific, like a metric that can be reported on. I think the challenge is across the government and across many different industries. It's not a dig at DOD or anybody. I think trust and autonomy right now is where like the congressional definition of pornography was like a decade or two ago where folks are like, yeah, I'll know when I see it. And you're like, okay, how do I quantify that? And like, what does that look like, you know, standardized across the board? So when you look at sort of a fluid kind of squishy, you could argue like the key metric for adoption is going to be something around, do they trust it? Will they use it? And a a reticence or a procedural barrier to bringing testing in early, how do you reconcile across the two? Because if I was sort of king or queen for a day, right, I'd pull testing in and I'd bring those end users all the way through because you're building adoption, awareness, buy-in, right? You're getting into sort of standard change management there. Without that, you're sort of got these the X and the Y axis go real different directions. There's no sort of equilibrium. How do you reconcile that? Or how can the department start to reconcile that, I guess? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I'm not sure. I think, I do think it falls on to the the change management side of of what you're saying, which is you have to understand that building these kinds of systems and validating them and getting them into the hands of warfighters is fundamentally different from before. you don't actually have to a priori figure out, and this is maybe the most heretical thing I'm saying here, uh, you don't have to a priori figure out exactly what trust looks like. It may be that by deploying it and by using the tools, you're actually going to figure, again, in low-risk, low-cost environments, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. don't do like you know massive investments, but do rigorous experiments. It might be that just by trying it out, you will learn that... Uh, what warfighters trust is maybe different than what you thought it was. And then you have to decompose that and you have to learn from it. Uh, but I think that's the biggest thing. It's just, it's not going to happen on six year time cycles. You spend two years doing a bunch of studies, getting a bunch of like uh, folks to say, this is what trust matters to me. Another two years to do the budgeting process, another two years for contracting. By the time you get the system, build in a couple, build in a couple CRs and, you know, we're a decade away. It's interesting, though. I'll tell you, though, what what I heard you say wasn't super heretical, right? I heard get it into the user's hands, get it into your sort of like, you know, your your initial sort of personas and then design and iterate, right? Like, to me, I think that's heretical from a, from a somebody sitting in a industrial age organization that's used to like, Everything is like hard R requirement coded in before we do the first thing. But if you look at the software factories, if you look at any of the sort of innovation, even look at some of the stuff happening in the Navy with POIWS, where they're bringing software and testing in, I think that that might be the sort of philosophical takeaway is, hey, good enough is going to be great if you get it into your users' hands early then you can build and you can iterate. Is that, am I hearing that correctly? No, 100%. Uh, So I think the, so two things. One is, I think not heretical 
to you and me and just the, some of the organizations that you've described. But I'd sort of challenge to what extent this is accepted conventional wisdom in the department. Point taken. That's one thing. The other thing is the examples that you've cited, which I agree with entirely, what they've done is they've cleaved off the software problem from the hardware problem. Uh, and the fact of the matter is that the uh, the uh, complexity becomes, you know, inordinately more when we're talking about things like autonomy, where it's at the nexus of the two. Where really you're talking about software-defined hardware assets, and frankly, that's that's a hard problem across the board. It's a hard problem in the commercial side. We're still learning how to do this correctly and well, but at the end of the day, um, you're going to have to figure out not just, hey, is it getting like a nice UI UX into the hands of a warfighter so he can ha- you know plan for his con ops effectively. It's can he actually learn to like trust the machine using new kinds of software that, that is being updated all the time. Like why why is Tesla the global leader in autonomous systems, at least for now, for on on uh for onward vehicles? It's not because they they bolted software onto the hardware. It's because they re-envisioned the car as a mechanism for delivering software updates, right? So it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a different kind of problem that I think is objectively a hard problem, independent of the department. And then when you apply it against some of the conventional- It's even harder. It's even harder, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, you're seeing progress from things like ABLE, I think it's still called ABLE Wingman and Loyal Wingman out at AFRL that, God, I remember a decade ago, sort of doing reports for that program. So it's also not a short time horizon kind of a problem. Um, but sort of stepping off the tactical challenges of how to bring it in and looking more at sort of the macro, the buying behaviors, the levers, the sort of overall market drivers. And again, I recognize like to some, it's heretical to call the Department of Defense a market, uh, but we will, for the sake of there's money, a buyer and a you know producer, we'll call it a market. Um, you, you authored a letter. Um, large sort of letter that got, I think, a lot of legs on um, some DOD sort of defense reform and what that looks like. Uh, take us through kind of what you're trying to get after. Were you, was it the intended outcome, sort of it getting picked up uh, a bunch of different places? And and what's the, what's the current state of affairs in there, if you're able to share some of that? Yeah, no, for sure. Happy to. Um, so our CEO, you know, Casper Yunus, um, who wrote the letter, he had strong conviction uh, after we'd spent the last year or so in the government space mucking around that this was something you know, valuable to do. Because basically, here's what we realized. What we realized was some of the challenges we were facing uh, as a company new to the government market were not unique to us. Right? Again, this is sort of like a obvious thing to say. It's like we kept having the same conversations. You and I had some of these conversations. Uh, and when you realize, oh, actually, there are these broader systemic problems that are out there. Is there a way we can be part of the conversation uh, to, you know, ameliorate some of those problems, help help fix them? Uh, and so one of the things that we found was we were looking for what are, what are some interesting ideas out there? What are people doing to move the conversation? Uh, and we found that the Atlantic Commission, um, uh, Atlantic Council Commission on Defense Innovation Adoption, uh, we, we thought they were doing some really interesting work uh, in coming up with just structural ideas for reforms. I think not super new to you or or me in terms of the broad uh, impetus, but what I liked about it was there were sort of tactical uh, ideas 
for, for things to get. They were way more practical than normal. Way more not, practical. Not as a, not, I don't mean there's a knock on like Atlantic Council. I mean like your normal commission. No, no, 100%, right? So it was like, let's talk about reprogramming thresholds because ultimately that's what's going to help move the needle in the next one to three years and getting tech into the hands of warfighters, like things like that. Um, so we said, we, we had conviction that these were you know, reasonable ideas. Uh, and we looked at partners that, that we had from the VC community or just other like-minded people uh, in the defense tech space uh, and recommended we do an open letter to the, uh, the Secretary of Defense, uh, emphasizing some of the recommendations. Uh, and I think, so here's what I learned from this. Uh, it was a valuable exercise. We had a bunch of really interesting conversations that followed on from it, from people who, uh, not just in DoD, but like on the Hill, were generally interested, um, A, in learning, but then B, also in sharing, hey, we're actually doing a lot of these types of things or we're trying to do them. And here's some of the challenges we're facing. So overall, it left me pretty, um, in relative terms, uh, I would say optimistic that there is an appetite for change here. At the same time, you and I know it's a very long, festering challenges. It's not going to happen overnight. And we just have to keep everyone who's in this ecosystem beyond just participating. One of the ways you participate in this market, I think, is help shape its behavior in a way that's more favorable to anyone who's trying to do something in, in a new and innovative way. Yeah, it's the best way to explain how I see it without it sounding like I'm talking about committing crime because I'm not. <laughs> it's, it's one of those markets where it's in everybody's self-interest to sort of not kill each other, right? Like this is not a zero-sum market. You want, you want the market conditions to still be sort of vibrant and fluid. And it's almost like you're running like an off-books poker game, you know, on like a Wednesday. And like, yeah, somebody's going to win every week, but no one, you can't have somebody lose bad enough that the game goes away because you want the game to go and you don't want the rules of the game to change. Um, and I'm probably going to come back and regret for some reason explaining it that way. But there is no, hey, somebody's going to take this whole mark. Um, I think we've seen what happens with hyper-consolidation with single provider, with what that means, both from an economic standpoint and also from a national security standpoint. And I think that is one of those big changes for Congress and the department is that, hey, uh, a little bit of a frothy sort of competitive defense tech market will yield tremendous outcomes for the country. And as a byproduct, the department. Um, it just won't look like it has since the last supper where, you know, we consolidated to what, five, six sort of tier one kind of primes and, you know, 90 cents on the dollar went through them and they just dealt with the complexity. So I'm curious, I guess I'm optimistic for that as well. I think, I think we've got to get through, you know, how to get a budget out on time and some stuff like that. So we can arm those folks at the PEOs and those folks sort of sitting in between who are working on it to try to do anything. You really hamstring the department when you say, Hey, all right, instead of having to shove all this money out in one year, you have to do it in six months. I am not jealous of what they're looking like every year in the beginning of the calendar year right now. No, hundred percent. And to go back to what you were saying just a, a minute ago about so the DOD as, as a market. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. It's almost like, in the U.S., we have the freest and most dynamic marketplace probably in the history of the earth for all of yeah. its 
limitations and its strengths, but freest and most dynamic marketplace. So A, what can the DoD learn from what it's a part of in terms of shaping that market and learning from that market? Uh, but then B, also take advantage of what's being produced in that market, right? Like that should be a, a no-brainer. And so it's how do you bring in, and again, it's not applicable in every case, how do you bring in the best of what's being fought and done into the department to serve the needs of warfighters? Just ask that question and then drill down tactically. And this is where I think, like, honestly, organizations like yours, like Second Front, are key here um, because what they're doing is solving what sounds like an unsexy problem, but it's one of those enormously valuable unsexy problems that bedevil commercial companies, which is how do I even enter and deploy quickly? Because in the commercial side, my goal is to deploy software really quickly, learn from users, deploy features, iterate the cycle that we talked about. I can often barely get to that first step in the government. And I think what you guys are doing is solving both the technology side of that problem and the organizational side. How do you deploy these tools? But then also, how do you like navigate this labyrinth of like uh, regulations and ATOs and all of this stuff, which it's like, you know, it should be like a separate discipline in itself. Yeah. I mean, our, it's funny. Our whole philosophy was, let's just make it not suck, right? If we can, if we can just remove a couple of those weird barriers so that, you know, not everyone's going to win. Not everyone's going to get selected. Not everyone's going to scale. That's fine. That's normal. But if you have this 50 foot wall between the department of the community and private sector sort of commercial tech, we're never going to win. There's just no chance. Um, which brings me into just sort of turning the corner on the, the last question here. So we'll bring a little bit of structure back. Um, so if you were king for a day and can change anything sort of about the, the defense tech sort of innovation base, the national security innovation base, how DOD buys, how people consume, sell, all of that. Um, what would you change and why? Snap your fingers, it's changed and it works. The requirements development process. So how you decide what matters and how you define what it is, that needs to change. Yeah. It's funny. The first time I learned like in depth about how that worked, I was like, oh, wait, like it's a game of telephone. Like some subset of the users talk to a subset of managers who talk to a subset of like, you know, ombudsmen or ambassadors who then go talk to your requirements, people who then go talk. And if anyone's ever played a game of telephone, you recognize by the time it gets through three friends, it's already changed. Imagine it going through like five offices. So yeah, amen, brother. I will say for all of the challenges, I think to your point, this is the most optimistic I've ever been. I think this is the first time in my career that I have seen for better or worse, right? Like the authorizers, the appropriators, many in the department, sort of all at least talking the same, which again, like is not yet yielding tremendous outcome, but talking the same. Um, I think optimistic on what an elevation of DIU and some of the stuff that's currently, at least at the time of this recording, still pending in NDAA, what that could look like for some transition stuff. So Hopefully, we're turning a corner into a into a little bit brighter of a future for for sort of emerging tech and commercial tech. Uh, but couldn't be happier to be on the journey with with the guys like you, man. So, thank you for what you guys are doing over there at Applied. Thanks for spending some time today with us and uh, and sharing some thoughts, man. Hope this was uh, hope this was fun for you. 
No, this was awesome. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening. Wouldn't be a podcast without some show notes. So check them out to learn more about Second Front and what we're up to. Stay weird.